Hello, friends, family, loved ones. My name is Inea Lujan, and you are listening to Cast the Line Podcast. Welcome to the very first episode of Cast the Line Podcast, a show about creative process and wellness and the stream of consciousness. I am so excited to kick this thing off. I've been dreaming about doing a podcast for quite a while. Um, Speaking of dreams, I had a dream recently that felt very significant to me. In the dream, I was a little child and I was hanging out down by a large body of water, kind of on the banks. And I was using myself as bait to lure this gigantic fish The fish came around and it swallowed me whole. And as dreams often do, um, at least my dreams, I then um, was somebody who was witnessing this happen. I was witnessing a little child get swallowed by a fish. I was a full grown man. I was able to wrangle the fish and save the boy. Now this seems very significant to me, at least where I'm at in my life. Currently, 2019 was a very challenging year. I went through a divorce. I had medical issues, um, just a lot of challenges, a lot of change. And part of that change has been this idea of self-care, self-love, um, something that until pretty recently was foreign to me. I never really learned to care for myself. And not only did I not know how to care for myself, but I continuously made that other people's responsibility, including my love relationships, my family, friends, because I didn't know any better. And since I've made self-love and self-care a practice and priority in my life, I've learned about who I am, what my strengths are, what my weaknesses are, what I could work on. But most importantly, I've learned to accept where I am in my journey and in my process. Um, Back to the dream, I believe in my dreams that I'm everything in my dream. So not only am I the little boy, but I'm also the big fish. I'm also the full-grown man who comes to the rescue. I think that this is about taking ownership over my life, about coming to my rescue, about coming to my aid, about being the things for myself that I've continuously expected from others. So why cast the line? For as long as I can remember, I have been interested in language, in words. There's magic in it. There's magic in the word cast. Now, when I think of the word cast, I think of casting a fishing line. My dad was a fisherman. My uncle's a fisherman. I come from a family of fishermen. I'm not a fisherman myself, but in a way I am. Creatively, I cast my line daily. 
We cast spells, we cast shadows, we cast demons out. We cast the dice when we take chances in our lives. Cast is a magical word to me. When I think about my creative process, I think about casting that line. Now, early in my career and early in my creativity, it was very important that by casting that line, it produce a result. In other words, I catch a fish. Metaphorically, a song or a drawing or something that was the result of my efforts. As I grow and as I learn about my creative process and learn about who I am, I realize that the end result is less important to me. What's important to me is that I keep returning to this familiar place and cast my line, put my line in the water. Now, does it matter if I catch anything? Not really. What matters is that I put my line in there daily and that I enjoy the environment. I enjoy being there. I enjoy the cool air on my face and the cold water on my feet. I enjoy being a creator. My intention with this podcast is to dive deep into the creative process of guests, musicians, comedians, artists, writers, poets, filmmakers, entrepreneurs, and other creative types, with a heavy emphasis on mental, emotional, spiritual, and physical health. I want to learn about what makes our guests tick. I want to learn how they motivate. I want to learn how they measure their success and how they navigate the challenges of being a creator in this modern age. That is my intention of this podcast, to learn more about myself, to learn more about others, and to continue this practice of self-love, self-care, and creative wellness. Some. Sorry to cut you off. Let's Good. let's get yeah. into this, man. I'm going to sure. do a little introduction. Um, just five, two, one, and we're rolling. Um, hello, everybody. This is Inea Lujan. Welcome to Cast the Line Podcast. I'm sitting here with uh, my good friend who is a comedian, graphic designer, uh, fellow podcaster, yeah, yeah. Mr. Wade Ridley. Welcome Hi. to the show. How are you, sir? I'm doing great, man. I tried to deepen my voice there because I feel like I have to keep up with your beauty. <laughs> oh, my like gosh. Because I'm yeah. older than you. So, yeah, you know. just, just a little background on me and Wade. Um, Wade introduced me to the magic of podcasting about six years ago in 2014. Mm-hmm. Also, um, just a... Wade was just kind of a, a major um, player in a just kind of a crossroads in my life. It was 2014. I was horribly depressed. I had a band that was kind of slowly breaking up. I had a relationship on the rocks, and Wade Ridley and I met through the comedy scene here in Pueblo. We did, yeah. That's right. I, I walk, walked into the downtown bar and walked into some energy that I hadn't felt in a long time, not not since the punk rock scene here in in uh, Pueblo, I walked into the downtown bar and it was full of people. Hundred, yeah. And here's uh, here's Wade Ridley hosting, and just like he's got, he's basically got the entire audience um, very focused. And um, I was just blown away. I just knew I had to meet him, and I did. And I um, 
tried my hand at a comedy career. You did great. <laughs> oh my you gosh, fucker. you did great. Oh, I'm sorry. Do we cuss on this? Or oh, no? oh, okay. No, cool. you're, I'm so sorry. No, man, you're you're great. Yeah, this is a. We're not censoring. Not censoring anything on this show. But I just. Um, I'm so happy to have you, Wade. Uh, it just seems appropriate that you'd be my first guest because I, I mean, I'm honored. Yeah, just uh, the I and then you know uh, just to mention. His podcast at the time, at least, was seven one nine the Blocks podcast, and I was uh, kind. I kind of became a regular on that you show. You were a regular on that show, and yeah. uh, you know, anytime these guys were taping, sometimes I'd just hit them up and say, "You guys taping right now?" Because I mean, it was a form of therapy for me. I I would go and hang out with these guys, and you know, we, we would get super high and we would talk. Yeah. You know? and well, was, and that was the point of that podcast. Uh, that was a very loose form podcast and whatnot. So. Just to get you in for your experience and life, you have a different and unique vision no matter what the subject. So whatever that was, because at the time, a lot of that had to do with like men dealing with their emotions in a positive aspect. Like, how do you handle just trolls without violence? How do you handle being the subject like, you know, you're a performer, you're on stage. People love to hate performers on stage sometimes. Like, how do you deal with that? And then how do you men deal with emotions positively. And then we would add the community stuff right. to that as well. That's amazing. Um, I am running into some technical difficulties here, actually, so we might have to start this over I'm again. I'm so happy this is happening to you. <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> not like a mean way. I'm just happy that uh, it's not just me. Oh, no, no, we're good. We're Like good. my first five podcasts on the movie. One yeah, just you know what I mean? My eyes. It's, this is the first time I'm giving myself some grace for sure. You know, um, I, I'm a Virgo to the T. I yeah. always want things to be completely perfect. I want my first attempt at everything to, to be, be the best. Yeah, right. So I'm, I'm learning how to uh, be better about that. So I'm not going to start this podcast <laughs> over, even though in my heart, I want it to be yeah, fucking well, perfect. I think that's part of the... Your the process though, like well, especially my creative process. I'm always in the very first part of like whatever this first one is. I'm putting it out there. So seven one nine the blocks podcast did not start traditionally as a podcast. I would record on a pretty horrible audio recording system, and mm -hmm. then I would upload it to YouTube, and then I would promote the YouTube video. Right, right. And the amount of mistakes that were made from that point in time to today. To today it is just insane. No, and that's actually, you know, you make a good point because that, to me, that's the appeal of podcasts is it's, it's not edited. It's not radio. Correct. We're not, we're not pre-taping. Well, we are pre-taping in, in a sense, but, but it is a live I don't want to say experience. organic because I hate that word, but it absolutely <laughs> is. I, it, it absolutely is. Especially yeah. if you have good conversation, good topic, you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Good, like, going yeah. all the way through it. So, so you kind of, you rung a bell there. Uh, this is a, a show about creative process. And, and my, my intention with the show was to bring on guests and, and kind of figure out what makes them tick as far as creative process goes, as far as, and also with, with the emphasis on creative wellness. And this is something that I've, I've kind of, I don't know that I that's invented or, or came up with. It's an but, interesting term. But it's something that's sure. just been swimming around in my head for quite a while because I think about, my creativity and how it's basically been manic and unstructured most of my life. And now as a, as an aging artist, musician, producer, I'm honing that in and learning that, you know, balancing, um, yeah, my, you're LeBron James learning the three point shot. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, you're I'm, not dunking anymore. I'm balanced. Yeah. yeah. I'm balancing my, my physical, mental, spiritual, and you know, like my yeah. diet and stuff. And then my creativity is, is really going through the roof. So, so really that's what this show is about is like, is diving deep and, and exploring that. But I also want to just like, you know, since this is a long format, I want to jump into kind of like, who is Wade Riddle? 
weirdly. Oh, right. Well, you know, that's a <laughs> paradigm in itself. I am, I've, I, I describe myself as a professional vagabond until like right now where I just for the first time in literally decades like decided to buy a house, settle down, create right. roots somewhere. Yeah. Which is very different for me because a part of my creative wellness it seems is absolute chaos at all times. <laughs> and sometimes it is you know and and that that's absolutely fine um did you were you born in colorado i was uh born in denver i'm adopted uh and me and my, so i'm adopted i have a brother big dave ridley for those people who don't know him uh me and him have the same mom different dads we were adopted by the same family and it's like a one in two hundred fifty thousand case, especially coming back to nineteen. And is he is he your biological brother? He is my biological half brother. Biological uh, half brother. Yeah. Wow. And uh, recently reconnected with my biological mother. I want to say like eighteen months ago. I have a podcast that's going to be recording on that. It's wow, crazy. Uh, what was that like? It was cool, man. I. It was really cool just to find that history. Sure. And then. I hate to sound so cynical about this, but there's part of you that's like, okay, I'm going to meet my biological parents. I yeah. sort of have two have scratch no idea tickets what that here. Would be like. I got a couple of scratch tickets here. Biological mom, biological dad, and I'm going to scratch this fucking scratch ticket. <laughs> I'm going to hope there's going to be like three matching gold bags, you know, and it's going to be <laughs> like this. Everything's going to get fixed. But, you know, you meet you meet your biological mother. You realize that that you know, the the situation that they were in, you learn a little bit more truth, you learn a little bit about more of your personal health, and the story starts to complete. Sure. And I think if I was 20 years younger, I might have a lot of emotion about it. But now it, at 40, or at least past 40, like, this is life. And, and for her at 15, and that's how old she was when she got pregnant with wow. me, uh, that life for her and me being together, just it would not have happened. Like if I think I had life bad now with her, it could have been worse. And she has made that clear. She's like, it, it would not have worked well if you had stayed with me. So she she went through with the pregnancy. Correct. And um, then she got pregnant again and she put us both up for adoption. She oh, so are, are you older? Are you by, older? Yeah, by a year. Dave's like... She turned around and immediately got pregnant with another man. Wow. And then she wanted to, she had to put us up for adoption because she didn't feel like she could take care of kids. And then after she had Dave, she got married to another guy and then took care of his kids and regretted giving us up for adoption. She had actually tried to get me back from the foster home. And had you had contact with her at this point? I was, I was under two years old. Oh, okay. Yeah, so I was, so no, I was adopted you when don't I was have two. Dave was adopted when he was born. Like, Dave was right out of the womb born. She, uh, like, she had to disconnect from Dave right away. She tried to get me back because after she put me in the foster home, after the first week when she came to visit me, she saw that I had some bruises and she tried to get me out of the foster home wow. and they had said too late, like we're, we're putting them up for adoption. So how, how old were you when uh, your brother and yourself were adopted? I was two. Dave was, Dave was a day old. He was adopted before. Oh, that's what you were yeah. saying. And then our parents here in Pueblo, like they, uh, they told us from the get, they're like, you guys are adopted. Like, and I think they probably had to because I'm very different looking than the rest of my family. Dave looks like my parents. He looks like he'd be genetically 
like the birth child. Of and is this, a, would you say that the majority of like your appearance comes from your father's side? Or? It would have to. Okay. And I, I can only say that because I'm the only brown person in my family <laughs> and my father's Jordanian, or at least that's what I know of him is that he's of Arab descent. And, and how, do, how do you find that out? I found that out because I went to adoption agency, the adoption agency, Colorado Christian Services. I don't even think it's around anymore. At least it's not in the manifestation that it was when I was adopted. Uh, when I was in my 20s and I tried to get all this information. Well, there's a lot of red tape in the state of Colorado if you're an adoptee trying to find out about your biological parents. They don't want you just popping up on a Facebook message being like, hey, guys, I think I might be your biological father or mother, which is exactly what happened anyway. Like, my biological mom got at me on Facebook. She's like, I think I'm your mom. Wow. But we had already known, or I had suspected that this... And does she live in Colorado? She lives in Arkansas. Okay. But... After meeting her, I found out that I have one brother and two sisters. One of those brothers lives in Arkansas. One sister lives in Denver, and the other sister lives in Las Vegas. I actually lived in Las Vegas at the same time that my sister did. Wow. But and have you had contact with these other half-siblings? I have, uh, uh, my, my half-sibling, Michael, in Arkansas, uh, met and talked with him. Great kid, man. And he's actually the reason why I found out I might have like a... a a kidney disease, renal tubular acidosis. Wow, that's yeah, right. A it really is. Like we both have the same. I was very, very small growing up. I was four foot. I'm six foot three, hundred ninety pounds. Uh, I look tall and big like that. Was that's my some life. Michael Jordan shit. It right really there. is. Uh, so when I was a junior in high school, I was five foot one. When I was a freshman, I was four. No foot way. And then when I was a senior, I shot from five two to six one. And I still weighed 70 pounds. Like, it was an orange on a toothpick thing. Went to the army. Grew two more inches to 6'3", and then gained 50 Is this pounds. a survival thing? Like, I know, like, right? let's, let's break down the psychology well, of that real quick. They say smart people do that. How does, how does one... <laughs> well, so, and especially once I found out about my biological parents. Like, my biological mom is 5'2", 120 pounds. My mm-hmm. biological dad is 5'3", 5'4", and 130 pounds. Like, these are small people. And... My biological mom says it has to come from her brothers who are all over six foot three and stuff like that. My biological brother, Michael, is six foot one easily. So I could see that coming from her side of the family. Okay. That, that, the height anyway. Uh, the brain and the, the skin tone and whatnot, though, that is all have to be like my biological father. Even though I don't know who he is, I do have a suspicion of who he is. And Right. The reason that exists is because when I was like 24 years old, before I moved to Las Vegas, I get a manila envelope with no return address at my house. Whoa. And there's only one piece of paper in it, and it has been redacted. Uh, Everything in it's redacted, but not enough. So you can hold it up to light and read everything that's on this redacted piece of paper. And it's all of my biological dad's information. It's Whoa. his name. It's his last place of like residency. And do you think this came from your biological mother, or where do you think this came I, from? There's only two options I really have, or only one. Uh, I think someone within the Colorado Christian Services might have done something because I was pleading a case for like this is crazy. You guys can't give me my information that I'm entitled to. So I think they may someone there may have like said I could at least send this and give this kid a, a chance. So from that piece of paper, the internet hunt began. Mm. And there's literally only one person with the name Hussein Ahumari that that is on the internet. And that person was fitting all of the criteria that existed. Uh, sure. He is a 
uh, a PhD in what? Oh, uh, uh, algorithms, computer algorithms. Oh, PhD wow. in computer algorithms from Stanford, and he owns a couple of patents that uh, apparently him and his buddies created the computer code that makes computer talk in English to Arabic and then translate from Arabic to English that computer code. So him and his friends created that computer code and sold it to the Jordanian government or something like that back in the 80s. Yeah, or 90s. So, yeah, that's what I'm saying. So he lives in California. I mean, with, even if this isn't the guy. I, mean, I know, this right? Is like, this is, this is, what this a story. is an incredible story. What a journey, right? What a journey. Story. So he has sons that I could be like, I think maybe I might look like this kid. And he has a wife who fits the criteria because hmm. him and my uh, biological mother were like just a summer fling. And he was engaged, I think, at the time to his wife to get a green card or something like that. Uh, and then they, they, they fell in love, got married, had three kids of their own. And then my biological mom bailed from Cali and came back to Colorado to live with her, her, her mom, who then wanted to adopt me. Her mom did. Wanted to adopt me so that her boyfriend could have a son because her boyfriend had just had a miscarriage with his ex-wife and was in a bout of depression. So she thought she could fix it by providing him a son, which would have been her grandchild. And so my biological mom is like, I'm out. No, I'm putting this kid up for adoption because lady, you're crazy and your boyfriend is crazy. So and I'm 15. So there's nothing I could do. And this is and what's what's the year? Seventy nine. Yeah, somewhere around there. I was born gotcha. April seventy eight, so this would have been in in like. So you're born April seventy eight. You're put up for adoption when you're two. Correct. I mean, you're put up for adoption, you mean, and you're yeah. you're adopted when you're Correct. two. I lived in um, I lived in a barn in Hugo, Colorado, for a little over a year. Wow. Which is East Colorado. And you get adopted, and and your your parents currently they live in Pueblo. Were they living mm-hmm. in Pueblo at the mm-hmm. time? My dad is, uh, or was a steel worker. He has more seniority than any other person out at CFNI. He worked there for 46 years wow. uh, in the tube mill. And then my mom was like a housewife, basically. So what's, what's childhood like? I mean, are like you, you get enrolled in school. What's, what's just, what, what's your... I mean, I really don't, this was, even to today, I think my concept of family is warped. Sure. Like it doesn't really exist in the normal I guess you could say plane of existence. Well, what was your what was your refuge? Where what was the world that you kind of created that that felt like a, a sense of safety? Sure, that would be my room, cool. and that room was surrounded by encyclopedias. Uh, there was no real cable television back then when I was coming up. There was no internet or anything like that. So I had Nintendo, and I had the Disney Encyclopedia series and the Time Life Encyclopedia series on like Greek uh, mythology and ancient Roman mythology. Wow. And you're diving into this stuff. All of it, I mean, all I, of it. and this uh, is Encyclopedia Britannica's art. Like, and you're interested in this? Yeah, stuff. absolutely. Well, and it's it's very apparent that my interests are different than my family's interests. Like as a whole, so you're kind of you're staying in your room. You're you're reading encyclopedias, playing some Nintendo. That's it, man. I I try to be as active as possible because Dave ends up being an athlete. Like up until he's eighteen, like he's scouted. What's by his sport? Football. And yeah, he's scouted, that makes sense. Doesn't it though? <laughs> and he's scouted by the University of Nebraska in eighth grade. 
Like Dave is that much of a stud. Wow. What and was his? Uh, what did he play? He played everything. He was offensive line, defensive line. He was the kicker, the punter, field goal, you know, everything. He never Just came won, off the field. Yeah. And, and they wanted him to be a stud to go on. Sure. And, and he played for uh, what school? He played for Roncalli and Central. Wow. Uh, yeah. Okay. Central High. Yeah. He played with Marvin Brown in Central High. Like. Uh, okay. So awesome you got teams. you got a. I'm starting to see a picture here. I you mean, do, right? You're, yeah. you're adopted. And you know Dave, too. You're adopted. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. You know, you got you got the brother who's so, who's the all-star Yeah, and for me, I was, I was the artist. So, and within that, you're talking about a period of time where a steel worker does not know what to do with an artistic child. You know what I was like? Like, this world doesn't exist and, for Yeah, we're dad. talking about a blue-collar. Correct. Blue-collar, 20-year military veteran. Like, this man is looking at a kid who's trying to talk to him about, you know, uh, 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 Chagall and I'm trying to talk sure. to him about uh, you're uh, hitting him with some esoteric everything I'm like stuff I, like he started tripping out because very religious and I started ordering every like religious bibliography I like I, send me the Book of Mormon send me St. Arthur and, and when my dad sees the Church of Latter-day Saints coming around and he's like what are you doing you're going you're bringing the devil and into what this is house. what is his um, religion Church of Christ, Church uh, of Christ. my grand his father my grandfather built Broadway and Ormond Church of Christ which is now the Agape Fellowship. It's Caddy Corner from Central High School. Oh, yeah, I know um, what you're talking yeah, my about. My grandfather built that church. Oh, my gosh. And I had no idea. my father was a worship leader there, like, all the way up until I was 16, and we bounced okay. to go. And you're talking about the original location, Correct. not the new one. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, so we left when I was, like, 16, went to an even more, like, ultra-right-wing conservative Christian church, 29th and high on, on the corner of 29th and high where my parents went for a number of years. And then they also handed out, uh, care and share food packages. So where do you find your niche? I mean, where, so, so you're, you're into reading encyclopedias. You're, so, well, you're not accumulating that, a lot of knowledge. Not only that, I become an actor like in seventh grade and I'm not talking just like, like how old are you even in seventh grade? 12? Uh, yeah. If that 11, 12, but, but you could tell, man, you could tell at, so Santa's workshop, Elitches used to have a Santa's workshop, uh-huh. and my parents took me there, and I actually actually got called up on stage by like the magician or something. And you had your moment. I did, and I put my arms out big, and the and everybody laughed and everything like that. Oh and my I was gosh, like, yeah, how old are you when this happened? I might have been so ten, maybe. So this 10. is a moment. It is, and I remember it clearly still. So I mean, like I was like, oh, that's a moment where as a stage performer, I'm like, I want to repeat this. You had that feeling though. You, Correct. You got that spark. Correct. Oh my gosh. And and then I was in choir all my life. So for those of you that don't know, Church of Christ is very specific. It's a New Testament church, but their one rule is use your voice. They don't believe in instruments in church. They only want to you to use your voice. So hmm. me and Dave became awesome at choir. All state, all city, uh, multiple years. Singers. Correct. Wow. Uh, but but church singers and not revivalists or anything no, like that. We are we are your traditional sure. church singers. Like there's not one like church hymn I don't know by heart uh, and specific part to it like the tenor and whatnot. So uh, uh, I go from there and in seventh grade I auditioned for the little kid, the little kid, uh, 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 Bob Cratchit's kid in A Christmas Carol oh, okay. for the Impossible Players. I'm in like seventh grade, and I don't get the part because I'm not small enough, which is hilarious. Uh, but but they said, you're too talented, so we're going to create a part and a solo for you. They wrote a part. And a solo. Into the for play. Me. Yeah, oh into my the gosh. play for me. So 
So this is looking promising. I mean, it, you're, and, you're, and then in you're ninth in, grade, it, it someone notices me in a choir song that's in the drama class. His name is Jeff Tucker. He's awesome as shit, and he says, "Hey, you have stage presence. Have you thought of acting?" And from ninth grade till my senior year in high school, there was not one play that I wasn't in, basically. And I loved it. I actually loved it so much that I got scholarships for it. I got wow. scholarships for it because someone saw me perform a life cycle, which is an acting routine where you act like you're a young man. You go all the way up until you're old and die, basically. You don't say a word. It's like miming. He saw me do a life cycle. He says, we need to get you somewhere. So he put me up for, <laughs> he's like, I'm going to get you an audition to play the understudy to Raul and family of the opera for Denver national performing arts center. And you will be an understudy for that part for a year. You're not going to make any money. And then after the year you'll audition in front of Andrew Lloyd Webber. Cause he still has to approve all parts for fan of the opera. If it's touring. And this is incredible. I mean, like you must've, you must've felt like you're on such a ride. Well, to an extent, because this all happened the day after I signed up for the army. <laughs> <laughs> so I had already signed this contract and this guy's like, here you go. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about, man? I can't, I can't do any of this. Wow. Okay. So, so, so where does the, where does the instinct to join the army come from? Uh, my boy Jericho joined and then was going to become a deserter cause he didn't want to go. And if you don't know what happens, once you become a deserter to the military, you don't really have a future career wise, anything. They will put you in jail. They'll fine you. Nobody wants to hire you after that because sure, you that's know, a blemish. Yeah, it really is. That's a blemish on the so resume. So I said, "What can I do to help?" And he said, "Join with me." And I said, "Fuck it, uh, joined with him." Wow. And and this is a homie from high school. Correct. Uh, yeah, we were on swim for team. the back. Yeah, 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 no, no, high school for Just sure. High school. Yeah, high school. Uh, and is he is he an actor? Is he? No, man. We were on the swim team together. Okay. Yeah. And that's how you know uh, each other. And we hung out all the time. Yeah. Yeah, I was the, that was one of my questions is like what was your what was your social scene like what was your friend circle like So we were the anti cool kids like by the time I was a senior we did everything we could to publicly humiliate cool people I'm talking about getting into uh any of the events that were put on, if I can get on a microphone, I was going to just start ratting out popular kids. Uh <laughs> and, and that's what I did and people loved us for it. Sure. So I don't know what my... I was definitely a hated person by popular people in high school. And then when I go on to where they see me now, they're like, you were a fucking geek in high school. Yeah, I was in speech and debate. I was four foot 11. I was in choir. I was in drama. Uh, I have uh, academic letter. Like, I've got five different letters on the letter jacket. And that's all because I didn't have a plan. I've never... I'll try anything twice to make sure I hate it. <laughs> yeah, plans, plans aren't something that really happen at that age. No. Well, and there's some people that are. And if they do, yeah, you're kind of like you're you're in the in a very small percentage. My boy, Dr. Tony Knowlton, right? He's a dentist here in town. He's about ready to open off uh, his own office on Union Avenue. Go go check him out, right? When he was in seventh grade or something like that, he sees this guy that comes in. He talks to him for 10 minutes. He makes all this money and then leaves. He's like, Mom, what's that dude do? Mom's like, that's a dentist. He's like, I'm going to be a dentist. <laughs> and he knew that from seventh grade on. And, and that's what yeah. he, like, I wish, I wish I knew that. When I, I mean, was, you know, I always knew I was going to be a musician. I just didn't realize that equated to being broke. I thought <laughs> I was going to be a forensic anthropologist when I was 16. Wow. That's I wanted interesting. To be, yeah. I wanted to do crime scene investigation. Sure. And then I well, met Because why not? Yeah. And then I met a man, my choir teacher, my senior year, Mr. Oliveri, who I know a lot of people here in town know, Mr. Mr. O. Uh, he was my choir teacher, changed my whole life. Mm -hmm. Especially towards an art, artistic expression as opposed to just... 
just school is school and you got to be good at school and then you got to go on to school right and he's like you're an artist man be an artist you know so what's so what's the the, the reaction from friends from family when when you sign up for the military <laughs> uh no one believes it because pretty boys don't join the army Skinny pretty boys don't join. Right. They don't and have you it. have you hit your growth spurt at this point? Are you still I'm I'm in it. I'm six one when I join and I come back six three. So Whoa. I join, I go in at six one, one hundred and twenty pounds, I come out six three, one hundred and eighty five pounds. So you're 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 eighteen years old at this point? Uh nineteen. You're nineteen, 19 to twenty. You join the military. What what is it, what does that look like? Um this is where I go on to meet one of the most influential people that will, will become a part of my life. And you talk about another artist in a totally different genre. His name is Franco Terry. Uh, Franco Terry is a playwright in Denver now. Mm-hmm. And we met in basic training 20 plus years ago. At Where's basic training? Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Oh my uh, gosh. We were in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. Uh, we bonded together. He ended what up. What time of year is this? This is in fucking July, but Oh. It's, <laughs> and, and I go from Fort Jackson, South Carolina to Biloxi. Mississippi after that. I've never sweat so much in my fucking life. Uh, Frank, however, ends up getting stationed at Fort Carson. And from that point in time, he'll go on to sleep on my parents' couch for like the next three or four years. We'll live together after that. And then he moves up to Denver and he uh, he is like one of the country's leading writers when it comes to wind energy like he takes what the scientists say and makes it English for the rest of us. To so you you guys meet in basic training Correct. and you just it, and now he's a playwright that's getting major props. Like Denver put him up for one of their awards. He's gotten a bunch of uh, uh, offers now. He's he's great, man. How how does this meeting influence you? So Frank would end up. Well, Frank's a poet. And I'm a poet at the time as well. I wrote a lot of poetry for a lot of different girls. That was my that was my big thing, you know. But Frank was an was actor. that your in with with the women? I'm not going to reveal my sources, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Frank uh, is a real poet to be sure. Like like Frank's writing poetry of heartache and and whatnot, and and we connect on that level. We connect on a music level because we're both music nuts, you know. Uh, and what's what's the music you guys are connecting on? So he loves grocery store hits, bud. Like he like <laughs> explain like any any seventy song, eighty song that you could hear in a grocery store. Like Frank knows that song, and, and it's because he worked at a grocery store in Connecticut all his life. And so if you heard a grocery store song, Frank knows it. Uh, we also start bonding over hip hop because one of the guys that we're uh, uh, bunking with, this guy and me, know a bunch of hip hop. And Frank, well, what's in. what's the era? What, what year are you? So in this basic? would have been ninety seven. Ninety seven. So ninety seven, ninety eight. But the hip hop that I'm loving is, you know, Dr. Dre is fresh. Snoop Dogg is West Coast is now. Awesome. Right. We're like, talking about the rise of death, death Row Records. Correct. Right here. And, and and through that, like Kid and Play is still prominent. So if you know how to dance Kid and Play style, you've got an in, right? And, and the military is a big bonding, big bonding thing. So music is a thing people bond over. And, and because of that, we're just kind of sharing these experiences with each other. Uh, basic training would end. He'd go off to wherever the fuck it is he went off to. I ended up on Biloxi. We'd meet up again in a year. And like I said, he'd live on my couch. He'd write poetry. I think he lost his fucking virginity in my mom's car. <laughs> uh, like Frank... It would go on to be a great person, like, and he's a very influential and person w- in my life. Where did he? Where did he come from? Was he Colorado? Connecticut. Oh, Connecticut. Yeah, and you'll hear that East Coast come out of him sometimes. Sure. Like if he's like in a passionate type, like oh my wicked god, like he'll just he gets into that. So it's uh, 
Uh, I love him to death, man. He's one. And he's my Nuggets, like my other Nuggets persona, Denver Nuggets persona. We go check out all the games together, man. So uh, would you say that this is like your first like real world homeboy, just like somebody out in the world? You know what? It's my first person outside of Colorado, yeah. Gotcha. That would go on to be a life type of friend. And does this sure. make the military uh, a little easier to get through? Bearable. bearable? I'll tell you what, if the military was like basic training, I'd still be in it. Wow, that's interesting. Because what, basic why? training, because it's not a, it's not serious. Once you leave basic training and, and AIT, you go on to your duty station, and it's a job. So when I was in the military, ninety six to two thousand, nobody, and I don't know if you remember this or not, people that are listening, that's the last time we weren't at war. So my military experiences largely consists of cutting grass, kicking it. And not really doing anything because there was nothing to do. We weren't at war. Right. These are the so, Clinton years. Yeah. <laughs> so there's no, there is no like urgency to like, I have to pay attention to this because I'm going to be throwing a grenade at someone here pretty soon. Interesting. So while you're, while we're in the military, at least while I'm in the military, it's fun. It's not a job. Yeah, I'm getting yelled at by a drill sergeant, but the people that I'm meeting and, and who I'm hanging out with and these experiences in general, this is an amazing time. And you're finding some community there. Absolutely. It's because that's all you got around you. And they kind of make it that way. Like, you have to depend on the people around you there. You have to have a battle buddy. So so you're you're in basic. You get orders. Where do you go? Uh, I end up going back to fucking Fort Carson, which was the last place I wanted to go. I don't want to go anywhere like that. But, uh, which is fine. Come back here. And within that process, become a reservist. And what is a reservist? Uh, only the weekend gig, weekends, army reserve, like gotcha. uh, weekend gigs, and then two weeks to four weeks in the in the summertime and whatnot. And it's through that that I actually find my because of that I find my career, which would go on to be service industry, which is where people of Pueblo, Colorado, would largely know me from. What was your first job in the service industry? The old gold dust, bud. The old gold dust, which is where? Which would be on the corner of C and Union. It's the the clock repair shop now, the jewelry repair shop. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was I the know, gold dust. I know the people and who own that. that used to be part of the triangle, quote unquote, which was three bars in the early, late 80s, early 90s that everyone would go to. It was like the gold dust, the branch Inn, and the Savoy. So, and you're still doing Army Reserve? While you're, while you're I'm actually working five jobs at a time at this point in time. Oh I'm working gosh. for Djoy's Italian Cafe for Marty Djoy, rest his soul. Uh, and then I'm working at Rogue's Gallery in Soho Bar with Johnny Gras, bartending every now and again. Uh, gold dust, Evolution Nightclub, teaching swing dance, modeling, and reservist. What's, what's motivating you to, to keep this sort of schedule? Women. <laughs> it was so bad back in the day. Uh, no, so uh, I'm getting married, everyone. I need to like, I should probably precursor that. No, I'm getting uh, uh, my friend, one of my best friend at the time, uh, which is a relationship that I lost and, and the one that still affects me deeply because it's my fault that this relationship is lost. Uh, Jay and Silent Bob used to have a quote, heterosexual life mate. My, mine was Robert. And me and Robert worked everywhere together. So it didn't matter where I worked. Robert would be joining shortly. No matter what he, like I was doing, he would be doing. We played uh, paintball together. We did. Wait, how do you and Robert meet? We, women. Uh, we meet when I get a phone call or when I call him in eighth grade to let him know to leave my girlfriend alone. Because uh, he took her out for a movie. Now, I've never met him face to face. I'm just calling him and letting him know I'm not down with that. <laughs> C- 
go to school the next year. I'm not dating that girl no more. My boy, Doug, he's like, hey, Wade, what's going on? This is my boy, Robert. Robert, this is my boy, Wade. And Robert's like, I know you. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, I know you. You call my house. I was like, I don't call anybody. He's like, no. And he just says this girl's name. And I'm like, oh, my God. We laugh and become best friends. After wow. That. Yeah. So, uh, this, so Robert, you meet prior to the military. Yeah, my freshman year of high school. So, so you're back. Like I say, heterosexual like life mate, it was Robert. So you're back from basic. You're, you're Army Reserve. Still um, doing the Reserve thing. Doing yeah. the Reserve. You're, Finishing you've, out you've that contract. You've picked up a number of jobs. You've reconnected Correct. with Robert. Correct. And you guys are basically Well, and just... if you want to talk artistic, like this is another artistic part of me. I do a play for like the Impossible Players. I as well. Well, though, you do not a play. Only, what, what is your role in it? I did two different roles. It was Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde. I was a doctor. That You're acting, this. correct? Gotcha. Uh, but I'm also, and I might have jumped the jumped a timeline here or two. But uh, one of my other very big creative things is I'm a dancer. So I taught, I uh, learned swing dance, start to teach swing dance, and then start to win swing dance competitions. Uh, and dancing becomes a big part of my life at this point in time. Like I'm driving all over the driving all over the place, just doing swing competitions, just swing dancing because at, at it's this, a revival at this point. At in this time. point in your life, you're juggling a lot. You're army yeah. reserve. You're swing I mean, dancing. I'm you're up, acting. I'm up you're... from 10 a.m. till 3 a.m. every day, and I need every minute of that to be entertained because there's no internet, guys. There is no internet, people. It does not exist. So you have to right. fill your time. What is what what is a day in Wade Ridley's life when there's not something going on in this era? <laughs> uh sitting in my apartment on Broadway looking at the the fucking library. Like there it doesn't exist. A day off did not exist for right. me back then. So you're just I it, mean just so like my Friday schedule would probably be the hardest. Like Friday to Sunday would always be the hardest. You wake up on Friday at nine AM, you go to work at DJ's for lunch, you get done with DJ's, and then I go to work at Rogues Gallery and Soho Bar from four to nine and then for their happy hour. And then after that I teach swing dance at Trannies, which doesn't exist anymore, which was a tranny supper club. It was on yeah, I remember that. Mm-hmm. Uh, where the swing dance revival started for Pueblo, Colorado. So I would go teach swing dance there, and then after that, I would go bartend at Evolution Nightclub, which was the eighth circle of hell. Uh, <laughs> it, when that comes to like opulent, like sexual, like deviant, like Pueblo, Colorado remembers Evolution Nightclub. You know it. Where's that at? That's it's on Oneida. It's right next to AT and T. It's like in the architecture building. Uh, in between AT and T and Walters, there's a building that's architecture, and that that was that was a warehouse, and that was Evolution Nightclub. Oh wow! And yeah, that that that's before. Yeah, trust before me. I moved to yeah, Pueblo, it, I think. trust me. People don't like to talk about it either because all of the disgusting stuff that went on in that place for the number of years. Sure. So how but I would you... work there until three to four a.m. and then I would leave there, sleep for an hour, and then drive to Fort Carson. Uh, to play Army up until 6 p.m. on Saturday, and then I would teach dance again, go to Evolution again until 4 a.m., go play Army again at 6 a.m., and then Sunday night I would have to drive up to Denver to go teach swing dance or salsa dance because I started doing that too at at, uh, Club Sevilla or... Oh, fuck, where was the other place? Like Jupiter Moons of Springs. Anyway, I would teach dance on Sunday, and then Monday I would just crash and sleep like the whole day until Monday night where I'd probably go out drinking at The Gambler. Sure. Or kickers. So so this is obviously when you, you really start to hustle. And are you I learn are business. you living alone at this point? Are you you got a you got an apartment? Where are you at? Uh apartment house. Let's see. Oh fuck, man. Apartment on Broadway. We used to live by Central High School. Bouncing in and out. I in between all of this timeline too, 
I, I lived in Evergreen. So, God damn it, I'll try to put So, Soho kind of winds down, and I leave with the owners of Rogue's Gallery and Soho Bar, and we open up our own joint in Evergreen, Colorado. Oh, wow. And I'm a junior partner of that, and this is where I start to learn business, where the business of the restaurant industry, I guess you could say. Which and how do you on. get this gig? How, how does this... Because I'm just a badass bartender. Like, from that badass... Like, if you're a good bartender, someone's going to ask you to manage. And then once they ask you to manage, you learn how to write a schedule. Once you learn how to write a schedule, then you learn how to read an inventory. You learn how to read an inventory. You learn how to do profit p sure. sheets and shit like that. And from there, I get the experience of Evergreen. And I have a boy call me in Evergreen that says, hey, we just bought this bar downtown. Me and my uncle did. We're, we're losing. We're, like, fucking up, and we need help. And could you come help and be a managing partner at Phil's Radiator? So go down, come move from Evergreen back down to Pueblo, where Phil's Radiator now becomes... If you guys hear the lore where Phil's Radiator just had a thousand people every night, that's when I owned it. <laughs> uh, that makes sense. It, it and really what's, what's the era of this? This is... This would be two thousand post two thousand one, so September eleventh okay. has happened. So, so this is kind of where our timelines start to merge. I'm still about, I want to say, three or four years ahead of you because this isn't punk rock fills. This is uh, Mexico Cancun fills, where I have women on the bar dancing at all points in time, half naked, where there are melees, literally fucking melees, going on every sure. Saturday night. People yeah, so I guess I'm, I'm at I'm at the pixie yeah, end. You really are. Yeah, you might have been fifteen. Or something at the time. Like, I don't know if you would have been old enough to even 17. like. It's not that I cared about you having an ID and drinking in my establishment at that point in time. Uh, I, I but I will say this: I'm surprised our circles didn't cross and yeah. like So, Phil's goes down, and I go on vacation for the first time in like three or four years. And when I come back, it's no longer a Cancun bar. One of the partners, Clint, has now made it a punk bar. Where I say middle fingers to you guys for ruining everything I worked at for the past three years, and I'm going to go to this place called the Highest State across the street sure. and become a managing partner at the Highest. State. And this is a falling out with with Correct. Clint and Bills. Yeah. Correct. Uh, and me and Clint to this day still have a. I I wouldn't say beef, but it, I definitely wouldn't care to ever right. see him again. Uh, yeah, so so you kind of exited Phil's as I came correct, in. That's correct. That's, where that's we, why I was like, yeah, that's like we wouldn't, we wouldn't have we wouldn't have met because I would not have night. walked into Phil's after that. I, mm-hmm. I think it took me a couple of years to walk into Phil's after that. Uh, go to the highest state, and then from the highest state, and the highest state is the 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 three level building on correct, Union, right? That, that became three below. Correct. It was after three below. Okay, uh, after three below. Correct. Gotcha. Uh, across the street from the old Angelos, and it's like a fucking. Cupcake place now or something like that. The oh, Angelos is a cupcake. Yeah, place the only thing I remember about the highest state was passing out drunk in the bathroom. I'm glad we fulfilled our job. That's like <laughs> what we were supposed to do. But it's at this point in time where my life becomes toxic, and I mean like fucking toxic. Uh, I don't know how to handle not only a my ego. Uh, you talk to anybody back in the day about my fucking ego in my twenties. It's horrible. It's fucking bad. And I'd probably beat the fuck out of myself if I like met myself in the 20s now. Uh, I also, for the first time, in, am losing at a relationship that I don't think I should be losing at. And I'm learning. And I always put it this way. I'm learning my crazy. What's the relationship? This is me and my ex-fiance. And she doesn't want to be a part of it anymore. And I won't let it die. And because of this, I she wants out of the relationship. Yeah, and she did. Yeah, one hundred percent. We were engaged for a week, and then after that week, uh, 
we start this very toxic, the next five years, basically, of my fucking life is this toxic back and forth between wow. me and my ex-fiance. I leave the nightclub industry because being a bartender in the nightclub industry isn't conducive to being in a relationship. And I go to work at fucking Applebee's on the goddamn south side as a manager. And the culture shock for me is like, I went from the top to now fucking managing Applebee's. And I'm losing it. Is this a is this a deflation based on the this relationship not working out? Was this this a, is me losing it. This is me losing it. Like, is this like, and this is like I mean just based off of what I'm hearing, it's just like you've just been like it is like a rise and rise and rise and rise and rise. Go like and you here, find that you find this obstacle, which is a person. I mean, it is, it's my it, what, that obstacle. Kryptonite. It's not her. It's me, and, and it took me becoming a comic to basically understand that and it took me almost a decade and becoming a comic to understand that and it's the reason why i started comedy to tell you the uh to tell you the truth so but because of that i lose my, my my heterosexual life mate robert we no longer speak after because of this relationship and the toxicity what i'm doing myself uh and i finally see the destruction that i'm causing and i gotta leave pueblo i have to leave the state because mm-hmm. it will only get worse sure and I moved to Las Vegas. And it sounds like you and your your ex fiance are are still kind of like when you say it was toxic for the next five years. Are you like hooking up and like yeah, you're you hooking know, up? There's so just not. She breaks up with me so she could hook up with someone for a week, and then after that week we get back together. And then uh, I'm I'm still being a dog basically. You know I want my cake and eat it too and everything like that. But I have to leave. Like I gotta leave. Right. And I moved to Las Vegas. And I bring my f- bullshit with me, basically, is what happens. Why Vegas? Uh, I got connects out there. I, I got connections out there that... From the military or from the... Phil's from, Radiator. Oh, Two no people at Phil's, Phil's Radiator would go on to work in Vegas. And they would give me... You know, they give me my, my recommendation. And then Las Vegas... You talk about the fish out of water story that comes to a rise of success... The success I see in Las Vegas makes everything in Pueblo, Colorado seem fucking meaningless. Hmm. Like just, just, I now, my ego has now become And you're what, new, 23, 24? I am now, I would be 27. Okay. Uh, somewhere Year of around. chaos. Yeah, serious. Oh, no, 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 that's Return to Saturn. Sure. Uh, yeah. I am now achieving in Las Vegas at levels that I kind of feel fake. Like I feel like I shouldn't be at this level. What, is it, what does that mean? So it, what, what people don't realize about Las Vegas is it is the money mecca of, of the United States. It pretty much, like, it, there's so much goddamn money that goes through Las Vegas, either being laundered through clean businesses and everything like that. Uh, it is also, it's an international mecca. And so for us in the United States, it's it's like, oh, we're just going to Las Vegas to go have fun. No, this is an international mecca. People come here from all over the world to experience the best in food, the best in entertainment, and they pay top dollar for it. And mm-hmm. because of that, the, the professionalism in Las Vegas is through the fucking roof. Sure. You have to be on point 24 hours a day day seven days a week because especially where i'm working i'm working for a company called the light group doesn't exist anymore they probably got shut down for being devious pieces of shit (laughs) so 
The Light Group, however, is one of only two private contractors in Las Vegas that has their own A, nightclubs, B, fine dining restaurants, C, European swimming pools like Bear and the Mirage, which are topless swimming pools mm-hmm. and whatnot. So because of this professionalism, customer service, and VIP treatment, like that's all we do is VIP. Britney and what Spears, are you doing? Leo. Are you liaisoning? So, or? so I come in <laughs> as a busboy. Lying to people back in Pueblo, Colorado, that I'm like, I'm fucking striding, you know, I'm doing good, but I'm a busboy in a fine dining restaurant in Las Vegas. And if you guys think that's cheap, cool, but I'm making forty to fifty thousand a year as a busboy. And within, that's incredible. Yeah, serious. And in two weeks, uh, I become a food runner, which is like a twenty percent increase. I'm making sixty, like sixty G's a year, just running food from the kitchen to the fucking table. But I'm ambitious, and within a month, I become a server. And servers make close to 100. And within becoming a server, you're getting more contact with not only VIPs like Leonardo DiCaprio, David Spade, Ray Romano, Jamie Foxx when he won his Oscar, shit like that, right? Uh, The Jabberwockies, Dwayne Wade, my big break, my big, big break from becoming a food runner to being taken fucking seriously server-wise was Dwayne Wade's birthday party for the 2006, I think, 2007 NBA All-Star Game in Las Vegas. He has his birthday party at our nightclub, Jet. And they are catering it from our restaurant stack. And anybody that's working this club inside a jet where they've got Prince, uh, Kanye West, uh, uh, Ricky Rod, like they've got all these performers coming for Dwayne Wade's 30th or whatever birthday party. All these NBA players are in the house and we all get a free pair of Dwayne Wade's Converse because this is his Converse shoe party as well coming out. So it's his birthday party, his shoe party. I get these Dwayne Wade shirts, these Dwayne Wade shoes, and we kill it. Like, I kill it, right? We just have this amazing fucking party till five in the morning for Dwayne Wade's birthday party. And from that, they're like, you are now no longer a food runner. You're a server, close to 100 Gs. Within a year, though, of being a server, I get an opportunity to work with Chef Akira Bach. And I don't know if anybody knows that name, but if you know who James Beard is, you'll know that James Beard is the Academy Award awards for food and Akira Bach is won the James Beard award for best presentation which is like the fucking Oscar baby Mm. for years but before he started he needed someone to give him a chance and that was our company and he opened up a restaurant called Yellowtail in the Bellagio but he needed his concept to be proven to all the big wigs. So this is Billy Baldwin, who isn't a Baldwin brother. He's an oil tycoon. This is the board of the MGM grant. And he has to prove to these guys that his restaurant is worthy. And he needs a server to take his food from the kitchen to these guys. And the only server he trusts, thank God was me. And he brings me in. He teaches me all of the finer points of sushi, all of the finer points of Japanese food. Like when it comes to that, that's my shit. That's my specialty. Hmm. So he teaches me all of that. And then he says, sell my food to these fucking people here. So I sell my food to the, sell his food to the, the, the corporate guys at the, the MGM and the Bellagio, the, that whole Mirage umbrella. They open up his restaurant. And because of that, I get special like placement within the staff at Yellowtail, which is on the Bellagio. It's uh, patio overlooks the fountains and it sits over the lake. So if you're sitting on the patio at Yellowtail, you're sitting on that little lake and you're watching the fountains like spray you with that yeah. water. Uh, from there, I get an opportunity to build and open up Encore, which is the second tower of the win. Encore is beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful casinos on the strip. Uh, open that up, have a blast. And then two back-to-back shitty fucking things happen. One, the recession hits Las Vegas. We open up Encore January 1st, 
2008, right when the recession hit. Right when Obama tells people, you probably shouldn't be going to Vegas to spend your money. You should probably save it, right? So PSA from the president. It's serious, right? PSA from the president. So Vegas is falling, and speaking of falling, a server drops a martini glass at the bottom of a ramp and walks away from it, and this is against protocol. I don't see it. I slip on it, and as I slip backwards, I use my left hand to brace my fall, and in that process, the Movado watch that I was wearing saves my wrist from going all the way backwards in my hand, basically. Ooh. But... It cuts the tendons up pretty fucking good. I get fired the next day uh, because there they have corporate lawyers on retainer for this very purpose. They fire you. They put you in the process of workman's comp, which I get denied. This is so you don't sue? Correct. Uh, Well, no, this is because so if they fire me for what they say I did. Oh, I uh, uh, instead of comping two ice creams worth six dollars i voided them and because of that i was fired Uh, they see that as theft there so yeah i know right so it well and not only that we're in the recession so they're trying to fire everybody they can sure they they don't want staff anymore so it takes me the next 11 so they're getting creative as to why and it takes me the next 11 months to sue basically to win to get surgery, to get back pay, to get workman's comp. However, in that 11 months, I am now a squatting homeless person inside of Las Vegas. Holy I can't shit. get a job anywhere because I'm unemployable because I'm injured. Can't get workman's comp because I got fired. So for the next 11 months, I'm at the whim. Once again, you talk about a rise and now a fall. Sure. I am now living in Las Vegas. And you're not, I mean, and it sounds like you're not putting any money away. Where, I was. I invested. Okay. It, I, I did. I'm I did. saying where's. Yeah, no, no. Yeah, the money I put away was invested into a fucking blonde named my ex-fiance, who I had just kept fucking flying out to Las Vegas and spoiling for five fucking years. This is your ex-fiance from Pueblo? Correct. Correct. Who was just playing me out the entire time, Oh, wow. What a perfect situation for her. (laughs) And it was. It was. She'd come out to Vegas, and when we didn't see each other, she was just meeting other dudes to go away with them and shit like that. And, and, And... Straight up, I was just in the same situation, just in Las Vegas. Mm. So I've fallen now again. Shit's all fucked. And after 11 months, I finally get the surgery. I settle, which is their real goal. I settle for a third of what I should be settling for. Because they'll just, they'll play it out for years more on end until I just can't afford it no more. So I settle for a third of what I should. I take that money. I give both of my middle fingers and I, I turn them up to Las Vegas. And I've never been there since. Uh, and I leave Las Vegas and I put a finger on a map. I say, I always wanted to go here and that's new Orleans, Louisiana. Mm -hmm. And Holy shit. You talk about a change of life, man. I cannot thank new Orleans and the people of new Orleans enough, especially my friends and my family there. This is the first place. New Orleans will be the first place that I learned that concept where that concept is applicable family. Uh, wow. And it's because of people that I met there. The very first person I met there, little piece of this goddamn arrogant shit, and I love him so much to death. <laughs> I, I love you so much to death, Aaron. His name's Aaron Schnell. And the very first person I meet, where are you from? I'm from Pueblo. Where are you from? He's like, oh, I'm from here, but I went to school in Pueblo. What? 
What? Yeah, Aaron went to school at CSU Pueblo because he lived in Denver for a couple of years. He went to CSU Pueblo for like three weeks. Was he, It was USC back then, Yeah, right? it was. It sure was. University uh, of Second Choice. And I his, think that's yeah, why they renamed it. Yeah, and his dorm it. room was at the Holiday Inn because all the dorm rooms were fucked up over here at, at USC. So he had to get dormed up at, at uh, the Holiday Inn on 29th, that horrible place. So this, uh, when I come to New Orleans, if I thought I was stuck up before... I am definitely stuck up now when I get to New Orleans because I'm coming from Las Vegas and the velvet ropes. I'm wearing $5,000 shoes, uh, suits with $3,000 shoes on. I got this fancy haircut and I get to New Orleans. Like I know all this sushi history. I'm a wine psalm. I'm all this shit. And I get down to New Orleans and I'm like, this is fucking peasant food. Mm. This is fucking, what is this dirty fucking place? Whoa. Because this is three years after Katrina and trash is fucking everywhere. Oh, sure. Everywhere. And the neighborhood I move into because it's cheap, right? I'm just like, oh, it's cheap rent. No, 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 no. I move in to the third ward. I move across the street from the Magnolia Projects in the third fucking ward. For those of you that don't know, the Magnolia Projects were the worst projects in all of the United States before they were fucking torn down and built again. Like, I am in a very bad place. Cops don't come to my neighborhood. Taxi cabs won't drop me off there. I am the only, or no, I'm one of three white people in this neighborhood, and I get robbed on Mardi Gras by the only other white people in the neighborhood. Uh, New Orleans is crazy hyper-violent, and I moved right into it. Mm. And I, I don't know where the fuck I am. I, I just know that I can get jacked in any fucking second. Uh, my house would go on to get robbed twice in, in two days, and I didn't give a fuck. I loved it. I loved it. Whatever. Because it's New Orleans, and this is New Orleans. This is actually the salt of the earth and my people, I guess you could say. Mm. I'm, a, I'm a, a union kid that was raised up to be that way, you know? Uh, raised up to be union, raised up to be of the community, raised to be up of the people. And Las Vegas changed all of that for me. Uh, when you go into management in Las Vegas, union is now the bad guy. Uh, workers' rights don't exist. You are now the middleman for the corporate sleaze and that person I never wanted to fucking be. And it took New Orleans to bring all of that out and just crush it and say, this is what we do here. See, everyone here, if you're rich or if you're poor, we all got problems because we live in New Orleans and on any given weekend, we cannot have running water because our water purification plant here is the oldest in the country and it shuts down for like no fucking reason every three months. So we're all family here. And mm -hmm. we're all going to get drunk here more than likely at the end of the day and during our shift and everything like that. And if you don't want to do that, that's cool, but we're going to, and everyone's going to have fun. Uh, and then I learned how much fun they have because I'm actually there when the Saints win the Super Bowl. Oh, wow. And that night is fucking crazy because I'm running yeah. the only fine dining restaurant that's open on Bourbon Street that night. Crazy night. Uh, but... New Orleans gives back to me the thing that I've really needed to get in touch with myself, and that's an opportunity to be myself. I don't have to wear $3,000 suits. I don't have to have a show trophy ex-fiance. I don't have to have cars and all of this material aspect. I now need to start understanding what's wrong with me. Sure. Why did I keep answering my ex-fiance's like text messages all the time. Why did I keep doing that? Why did I need this codependency to exist? Would it be fair to say that you're getting to know Wade Ridley for the first time in, yeah, in New Orleans? Absolutely. Uh, that introspection that I thought existed all the time is now starting to happen on like a daily basis and I'm able to apply who I want. And what be. sparks this? Just just this sense of family, the sense of you know of, what it is of it's not a, having to live up I to get, an expectation. I get this reinvigoration of youth of people around me in New Orleans. Aaron Schnell, his brother Spencer Schnell, Nico Moran, 
uh, these become my brothers. You know, these become uh, uh, people that introduce me to their family. They take me on Thanksgiving and Christmas to their meals and their dinners. Anytime there's a family event, they invite me. Like, this is the first time that's happening. Uh, wow. Me and Aaron's dad, Steve, he was, he ended up being the, the uh, uh, GM at the place I worked, and I was his assistant right underneath him, and we just had a great bond and relationship. And his sister, Kate, like, his whole family, Nico's whole family, uh, Kim Wyatt, like, there are so many people down there that were just so beautiful to me. And these are maybe some of the first healthy relationships that you're starting to create. That's a very valid way of putting that. Because I never, there was no reason for me. Working in the service industry allows you never to do that. Right. You're allowed to be a chameleon to make your money. Sure, and it's it's um, it, it can be very superficial. I mean, you're yeah, you're yeah, hustling. Yeah. Other people are hustling 100%, too. I mean, one hundred percent. I'm I'm sure there's there's some camaraderie that that goes with the job description, but mm-hmm. but having meaningful and and deep connections doesn't with work people, like that, it, especially no. because the service just, industry as well is incestuous. So everyone's sleeping with each other all of the time mm-hmm. in, in the restaurant industry, you know, it, and and it really doesn't work. So these are people that a I'm actually making bonds with and i'm trying to check like my goal is becoming aware of that ego and that id and what i had to do to satiate it and how much work i was putting into satiate and what's i mean at this point why why put your ego in check like what what are the benefits to to you at this point of 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 checking that ego humanity but like it, uh, uh compassion like when I would, but why? Why have compassion at this point? I'm, I'm just curious. Uh, that's funny. You say, you should say that uh, because I have learned what it's like to be fucking homeless. Like I, I just squatted in Vegas for eleven months. I'm here in New Orleans in this dirty fucking city. You're humbled, one hundred percent. And that humility is sexy. That humility is life to me. Mm. And and I know it takes a, a certain amount of swag and ego and cockiness to get up on stage and perform in front of people and try to command 200 people. But... But you learn more from bombing. 100%. 100, <laughs> like, like they say in uh, rounders, like poker players, they can't tell you any detail about hands that they won. I could tell you every detail about hands that I lost. Though. Absolutely, I think that's just how just how the mind works. One hundred percent. Those 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 experiences are going to rise to the top because they affect us in a deep, one hundred percent personal way. And uh, so so at this point, you're you're humbled. You're you know you're you're homeless for a period of time. You're living basically in, in the ghettos of, of well, New Orleans. But I'm, you're also you're also experiencing family. And for I'm the very also first told, time. telling myself I'm done with corporate America. I, I'm done being that person. I have looked back on the past 10 years of my life and realized the millions of dollars, literally millions of dollars I have made for other companies. I need to start investing that in myself somehow. Ooh. But I first a big one. need to get away from corporate world. And I leave the corporate world <laughs> and I go and work at a job that I'm starting to live for experiences, no longer for money. And... I say I don't want to. I don't want to be a corporate person. I want to know what it's like to be a bartender in a shitty, shady French Quarter bar, like I've always heard about. And I found it. Holy shit, did I find it! People, let me tell you something. When you go in for a job interview, ask to physically see the space you will be working in. Because because I didn't do that. Pro tip. Serious. I didn't do that. And they're like, show up here. You're working third shift, 11 p.m., 7 a.m. at this address. I said, Great, okay. I'll be there. Yeah, right. I'll be there. Right. I show up 
and it, it's obvious from the front that this is a strip club. There is a doorman outside with a top hat on uh, and bum clothes, and a woman standing next. But her, she's standing next to him, but her shoulders are like broad, like broad. Right. And I, okay. Hi. I walk past her and walk into the club in a very, I, I see a stripper and her name's fire. And she's like 98 years old. Wow. And she's like, honey, you want a lap dance? Good like, for her. Uh, yeah. Right. I'm like, no, I can't put your wheelchair up here, but I'm just going to go find out where I, I, I'm working. And she's like, okay, just walk past Miss Honey, who looks exactly like what you think she looks like. And she's like, and, and Brian, the bartender's in the back third VIP room. And I go back to the third VIP room where the bartender is literally tying off. Uh, he's got a, he's got a rubber right around that arm, needle right in that vein. And he's like, registers right there, bud. And just, just, just out. I'll see you in a few hours. It's serious. So... <laughs> I learn within the next 30 minutes that I'm actually working at, at, at a whorehouse, and I'm a pimp, basically. Uh, people will come in for services of these women, and they will pay for these services. And I love it. It's like you, it's like you declare to the universe. It, now, now, the niche to this is the place that I'm working at is also known as, on, on, on the streets anyway, and not in the yellow pages, but on the streets, this place is... This is one of two places, probably in five states, that you can get trans action. So the woman I saw outside with broad shoulders, uh-huh. that's Felina. She's trans. Uh, she's a trans woman. Uh, Felina is joined by Deanna and Miss Kayla, who are also trans as well. And yeah. I tell you what, politicians, superstars, athletes, they'd all come in low-key. That's amazing, though. And they're like, here you go. Here's the money. I'm just going to go in the back of the VIP room for a minute. And then they come back out, and I'm... Okay, and I feel disgusted on the first day, right? And it's six forty-five in the morning. I'm so mad, and I go back to the third VIP room. Get your ass out here, Brian, and clear this drawer. He's like, okay, okay, you know, he's like wiping the heroin off his eyes, basically, and like comes behind the bar, and he's counting out the tips. He's like, here you go, and uh, I'm just like, fine, fine, I'm counting out my tips. And it's like it's like fourteen hundred dollars. Like, okay. I'm going to try this out for the next 18 months. Sure. So there's a little give and take there. I mean, you you declare to the universe, I'm leaving the corporate world. I'm going to work for the experience. You just hit the jackpot of experience. I, I really did. This is and a- then And then you, and the, and the thing that keeps you in it is, I mean, obviously you, you don't just quit corporate life cold no, turkey. No, And you don't just give up money cold turkey. I mean, you're, no. you're but you, you also, see, though, you see the is, tips at the end of that night. This is the underbelly of New Orleans. Sure. This would end up being... Very mafia controlled around there. It used to be run by the Gambino crime family back mm-hmm. in the day. This is where the JFK assassination occurred. Like, not occurred, obviously, in Dallas, but this is where all the players met, uh, uh, crime family-wise. There's so much drugs, so much violence in the French Quarter, especially in the seedy parts of the French Quarter, sure. uh, which this is in. You know, and, and I fall in love with it, and, and I get to start experiencing everything. BP gives me ten grand for spilling oil in the Gulf. Like they give everybody ten thousand dollars when the BP oil spills uh-huh. down on the on the Gulf Horizon. I get ten grand. I buy a Harley. I ride around the Bayou, man. I am now a free person for the first time. Wow! And it's right. How long? How long do you uh, remain at this at this club? About a little, a little around a year. 
That's incredible. And, yeah, man. if not, if not, around do, more. do you do you develop a, a rapport with, with all the of staff? Them. Yeah, and, all of like Felina is an amazing human. These being. become human. Yeah, like, absolutely. Are yeah, homies. yeah, yeah. One hundred percent. Man, I love it. Yeah, one hundred percent. I love it. Felina's star and the the and what she gave me like story wise, uh, uh, confidence wise, like she looks like Patrick Swayze as a man, and and that's not who she wanted to be. Like uh, uh, she's spitting image, Patrick Swayze, and she's beautiful. Uh, uh, she went through her transition and whatnot. Dude, the woman who hired me, her name is Candy Slice, and she sounds like this, y'all. And she is very, I'm Candy, but if you fuck with me, I turn into Candy Slice. She's known this way. My boss, come to find out, she really should have told me this at the interview, but like she self castrated herself in the streets of New Orleans. That's cause, hardcore because she used to be a hustler. Like, she would just get dudes and jack them in the alleys of the fucking French Quarter in the 80s and shit like mm-hmm. that. And they call her Candy Slice if you fuck with her. Like, this was the world, right? <laughs> That's where the name Serious. comes from. Yeah. So, like. <laughs> oh, wow. Uh, oh, man, I love Candy. Yeah. So, like, they were both in a couple of pornos, too. And I know they're out there, and I just don't want to look them up. Uh, I, I leave there, and I end up working for a wonderful breakfast company. Right, and it's called the Ruby Slipper, and the Ruby Slipper has like three or four locations now around the South, and that's going well, but then the health of my parents back here in Pueblo is starting to go South. My dad's getting into his 80s, my mom's in her 70s. Like, And, and up until now, um, you've pretty much put the acting, the dancing. Well, the- I gave up all arts for corporate. Like gotcha. it, corporate that's, to that's be the been corporate up, life. Up, up until now. Absolutely. Basically from Vegas all the way up till this well, point. Even prior to that. So yeah. even from Phil's radiator. You're until, not doing you're not it, doing any acting. It, it, you're not nothing. keeping up with I mean, any if of I the am, dancing. It's, yeah, nothing. And it's because once you go into that corporate life, you are that is your life. And, and right. that was a sacrifice I knew I had to make. But New Orleans is starting to show me something about this whole family thing, and I'm like, I need to reconnect. I need to reconnect with my family. And you get an opportunity to come back to Pueblo uh, under poor circumstances, but Correct. you're coming back to Pueblo. Correct. To, uh, uh, and to, is this the first time? Like, are, are you touching base with your family? While you're, yeah. This is the first time. Oh, no, no. I'm touching base. Yeah, oh, I, I, I talk to my mom. Yeah, but uh, this is like, I'll come back to Pueblo like maybe once or twice a year, but gotcha. like I maybe have seen my family like six times. But are you limiting your contact with, with your family at this point? Um, No, not at all. Like me and my mom would probably talk like once every two weeks or something gotcha. like that. Okay. Me and Dave, though, would talk like once a year. Me and Dave didn't have a good relationship during this period of time um, because the way that the highest state ended had a lot of animosity. So me and Dave don't really talk. I come back to Colorado and I come back with nothing. You know, I'm back here in Colorado. I'm living with my parents. I'm fucking 30. You move back. Correct. You move back to, to Pueblo. To, uh, to basically my mom to, needs uh, to kind of assist and take care of your, your well, dad. My, my mom takes care of my dad because, like I said, he worked at CFNI for 46 yeah, years. Yeah. Broke his back, had major back surgery oh, like wow. 15 years ago. And my mom takes care of him, but she tore a rotator cuff and oh, she okay. can no longer do that. So, once that and is he, I mean, is he, does he have to be in a wheelchair? What, what does that entail um, for your, your he dad? He can't really stand and he can't really sit. Uh, oh, wow. he could shuffle around like he could, he could walk. I'm sure he should use a wheelchair, but he probably refuses to. So come back, take care of my mom and dad. And it takes about a year of healing. And in that year, the only thing I'm doing is studying stand up comedy. What the, where I the hell did this come from? Well, I've always loved stand up, but, uh, part of that introspection, part of that introspection came to someone being able to communicate to me how fucking dumb I I was and the responsibility that I needed to take. And that came in the form of Patrice 
O'Neill. Patrice O'Neill, something. Which is crazy yeah. for people to hear a little bit because Patrice O'Neill is known as a quite horrible misogynist. Horrible, sure. horrible, horrible, horrible. Uh, as a stand-up comic, though, he's a genius. He's seen as a genius by Bill Burr, Kevin Hart, Louis C.K. Everybody that we know today knows Patrice to be a goddamn genius, yeah. especially when it came to relationships, and especially when it came to some men's responsibility to themselves in a relationship. And once I got past all of his bullshit, and I could see what truth that maybe he was trying to communicate, I started to hone in on that. And how he did that was so goddamn sexy to me. Huh. How he was able to communicate that to me through stand-up comedy was sexy. And so are you watching Patrice O'Neill's stand-up? Like, what he doesn't the, have much. Where do you he start? He doesn't have much. Where, but where does your comedy... Ah, here just we go. Your... So uh, this next year, I'm keeping myself inside of Pueblo, Colorado because... And I don't know that this is true, but I feel that it's true because I'm a paranoid motherfucker. Like, I feel that the city of Pueblo hates me after High Estate, Phil's Radiator, Evolution Nightclub. Like, I feel like I have a lot of enemies in Pueblo. Mm-hmm. And I have no reason to feel that way, but I do. Well, there's there's some some guilt. There's some, sure. There's sure. some uh, 100%. Uh, self-deprecation Absolutely. involved. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I don't want to go outside. I'm just taking care of my parents. And I listened to this cat named Patrice O'Neill. Now I want to know more Patrice O'Neill. And he only has, at this point in time, one stand-up special. And you could really not find it. But if you're if you're a little inquisitive, you could find about a hundred hours of Patrice O'Neill just having conversations in real life about a multitude of things on the Opie and Anthony show, which was in New York. Uh, around the Boston area, mm. early two thousands, they're done now. They, there is no. OAS and you show. start. You basically start your study. Yeah, your, I do. You start and, your study and, of, of comedy. And because I'm studying Patrice O'Neill, his best friends, like I said, are Bill Burr, Kevin Hart, Jimmy Norton, people who today are at the top of the stand up comedy world. Absolutely. And when I hear a name like Jimmy Norton, and I don't know who Jimmy Norton is, I know he's a stand up, but I don't know who he is. So now I need to listen to everything he's you look ever him produced. Up. So basically, he he becomes a indirect mentor. 100%. And I now take the next year of my life to listen to probably close to over a thousand stand up comedy albums. Just, just, I, I literally hit the fucking. Torrance. Where does this obsession come from? Because that's me. That's me, I, and, and and not only me in a creative spirit. That's that's uh, uh, I'd I like to say some type of artists. Like once you get a song, just just a ditty in your head, do you stop or do you go to the studio? Oh, I'm completely obsessed. That's what I'm, I'm saying. just like, so where does like, it come from? So and and that come from is like if you've been following the story, I always like to know everything. I guess I always like to be knowledgeable to whatever I'm talking mm-hmm. to, and I. And this is that ego part. I like to be the smartest person in the room. And I like to, to know everything about the subject that I'm talking about. So stand-up comedy, I start listening to about a thousand different stand-up comedy CDs. And then six years ago, basically almost, almost to the day that we're filming this, probably within three weeks of us recording this, uh, I did my first stand-up comedy. And it was at... The sports garden here in Pueblo that randomly had a stand-up comedy show. I got five minutes on it, and I fucking breathed fire. I did good, and I breathed fucking fire. Like, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. This is an open mic? This is a show. I didn't do an open mic first. What? Someone had saw me do a performance of a storytelling performance, and they're like, yeah, I'll give you five minutes. So I do this five minutes, 
and even like someone's like, I went to this comedy show last night. They posted it on the social network the next day. I went to the show last night. There was one person there that just, they're going to be good. And that's Wade. And I was just fucking, yeah. So from that point in time on, I stopped listening to comedy because I didn't want to be influenced by anything. And I started writing and looking for mics and getting in the scene. And then I also started like listening to this new podcast, the Joe Rogan podcast. Don't listen to it anymore. But I started listening to that and I was like, well, fucking Pueblo needs that. It seems like every other fucking comedy and comedian in this world is going to have a podcast. Mm-hmm. I need to start that too. So lots of things kind of just like, there's a lot of like, um, just sort of, uh, well, I- I'm also trying to find my way in life. I know that I'm not going to be this corporate person anymore. I also know that I have a real fucking problem with authority. So when mm-hmm. it, me goes to like a job and it's like, Hey, let me be an employee. Uh, I know that there'll be probably six months down the road, some type of like, spark that'll start sometime but it's like it's 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 almost as if everything is leading up to this i mean you're you're into your your encyclopedic knowledge for one sure you getting into acting dancing all things that have to do with with rhythm have to do with timing have to do with stage presence you go you go and have this um tenure and uh you know well you you go to the army you know which which gives you some grit it does. Some, oh, yeah. It gives you some experiences. You move to Vegas. You move to New Orleans, and so at, at this point, you have you got to have so much material available to you. But that's not what I'm paying attention to because when you're an early comic, the only things you know how to talk about, especially men and guys, if you're thinking about starting stand-up comic, avoid these three subjects at the beginning. Don't talk about your dick. Don't talk about how much you hate women, and don't talk about poop. If sure. you could avoid those three comments, those three topics right there, you're going to have a much better foundation than I did because my influence was Patrice O'Neill. And like we just discussed, Patrice O'Neill was all about fucking misogyny for three quarters of his uh, stand-up set. For me, so for me, when I started, I am now using this as therapy. And I sure, know... and you have a template. Correct. And that template is a, like pro-male, I guess you could say. And this is where I think I want to be when I first start stand-up comedy. Uh, soon leave that in the dust, though. It, like, leave all of that behind. Also, I start... So there's no, there's, no, there's no comedy in Pueblo. There's no comedy in Pueblo, Colorado. Like, there's a show every now and again. There's no open mics or anything like that. And I would have to spend 100 bucks to drive up to Denver to go last at 1.30 in the morning in front of two people. And... It just wasn't worth it to me. So I was like, fuck it. I'm starting my own comedy open mic here at the downtown bar. And then I'm going to start a show as well at the downtown bar. The comedy open mic goes off like gangbusters. I start drawing in about 100 people every open mic. Open mic, not a show. Because at this point, you know how to do something successful. Correct. I mean, well, so business-wise, ad-wise, like Vegas taught me, New Orleans yeah. taught me, all of that. But what You've I got all the th- tools, though. But the one tool... That I don't know how to use and I don't know what to do, but I'm trying and struggling at it it is graphic design. And thank God you thought I looked like a four-year-old kindergartner with a crayon because you (laughs) took me under your wing at this point. This is where our introduction comes with Carl Grutt. Carl Grutt is supposed to write an article about you for a Colorado Springs newspaper, and he needs someone to take photos of it. And he noticed that I was taking photos of all the open mics, and I was promoting That's right. I forgot about that. And he's like, you should come to this interview. You and Inea, uh, uh, you could take pictures of Inea. And if you've never met Inea, you two should talk. Right. I forgot about that. And we spent three fucking hours not taking pictures 
And all we were doing was bullshitting the entire mm-hmm. time. From that point in time on, you said, you come over here and let me teach you some graphic design. And you taught me all of the basics of graphic design. And from that, I used that to promote the comedy scene. And then within all of this moment, I sort of realize I'm a fucking artist. Yeah. I'm an artist. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not a corporate shill, even though I'm good at it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a bartender. I'm, not, I'm, a, I'm a goddamned artist. And it doesn't matter what medium you put me in. In the words of fucking uh, uh, Paul McCartney, or I'm sorry, John Lennon, uh, you give me a fucking tuba, I'll get something out of it. Mm-hmm. And that's how I feel about being an artist. So sure. stand-up comedy, Well, you've, at this point, you've used creativity for everything. I mean, I've used creativity... To make corporations millions, sure, because that's what they want you to do. Absolutely, uh, any all you've of your just bosses, learned how to shift that creativity to working for yourself. Correct, but you were creative all the while. Correct, you were never not an artist, even correct. when you went deep into corporate land. And it took me almost thirty-five years to understand that. So, uh, uh, stand-up comic now for six years. Uh, within that six years, I've had some wonderful successes. That's amazing that you were, so you were like just getting started when, when we met. Literally. I didn't, I didn't realize literally, that. Literally. Like I walked in. I'm on, in my first year of stand-up I remember comedy. coming down to the downtown bar and just, like you had such a presence. And that, that was something that I, I realized. Like I fell in love with the comics. I mean, you know, you had Paul Rosales, you sure, had John Bueno, sure. you had Matt Chapman. Oh, man. Um, you just had a lot of people. Casey, Dean. Dean Frace, yeah. Oh, my oh, yeah. gosh. Uh, ben Verbeck. I, I just remember a lot of comedians and everybody was... Everybody was doing good, and everybody was was like really like everybody was honing in their yeah. their craft. Everybody was yeah. was really starting to find their voice. One hundred percent. There was you, Wade, and you were you were hosting these shows, and you were setting a bar, and you were setting a vibe. Yeah, and I I caught that vibe. Yeah, like when I walked into that place, I I literally felt uh very similar to to how I felt um. When I when I stumbled into the punk rock scene here in Pueblo, well, where it's like you kind of created that punk. Well, I don't want to say no. created, but you definitely exploited it to where it, like people I knew was about a, it. Yeah, I, I was definitely a, 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 a another wave. Like the punk rock scene here was pretty healthy when I got involved. I, I was just a part of a, another wave of that. I gotcha. And it's like, but you st- you you kind of were on the forefront of something. Like yes. I did not know there was comedy going yeah. on in Pueblo and, and because at it wasn't. All. There was, yeah, there and, really and I would see, you know, I would have. There was like whispers of like, oh, there's an open mic and there's a sure. comedy night, you know. But sure. I completely wrote it off. Which everybody I was like, should. There's no. The only comedy night that existed in Pueblo, Colorado, prior to what we were starting, was like in the early 2000s at Pepper's Nightclub. There would be a comedy night there on Friday right. nights at seven o'clock, and yeah. that that never really took off. It's like I I don't want to go to an open mic as a musician. Why the fuck would I go want yeah, to right, see comedians doing it? Well, but then when I started going, I was like. There is a vibe happening yeah. here. Yeah, well, and that's how that's how a fucking badass comedy scene exists. Like, that doesn't exist anymore here in Pueblo, Colorado, and it kind of died when I left. And I hate saying that because it sounds egotistical, but it's the truth. Because you have to put in a lot of fucking work to keep a scene going. Absolutely, and, it takes a village to raise a scene. Yeah, and, but it also takes somebody who's who's deeply motivated and understands the the underworkings of what it takes to, to make something successful. Correct. And and you have this education up into this correct. point. Correct. So you're bringing your entire life of of education and put, pouring it into comedy. Correct. And and you made it look easy. You really Thank did, you. and you. and and the success of the comedy scene was was because you were putting so much love. Well, and, and I was not only investing my own time, but like people like you yourself. Like, so you would come out with all of your friends, and and you would try stand up comedy, and not yeah, only I was did into you try it. it, you were literally 
teaching me how to advertise stand-up comedy sure. as well. You know Absolutely. what I'm saying? Like, you were also in this point in time, and I credit you so much for this, and I know I say it too much in, in our private conversation, but, like, you literally taught me how to be an artist because I did not have that. I, I didn't have that knowledge. I knew what an artist was, and I knew that artists could be people, but what people don't see of Inea Lujan is the 12 hours of fucking day that you work on your project. Oh, yeah. Like, like uh, yes, the graphic design and poster that Inea just put out, it is a work of art, and with that title comes 20 hours behind it. You know, like, there's a lot of work that you put in behind the scenes that needs that investment. So, as an artist, I didn't know that. Like, as that creative process, I didn't know anything. Well, it was such a great exchange between the the two of us because I was at a place in my life where I had had that rise, that big rise. I, you know, haunted wind chimes. Hell yeah, man. You're Inea Lujan. Yeah, we we climbed up that ladder all the way to a prairie home companion, you know? Fuck yeah. 10 10 million listeners worldwide. So fucking crazy. And, And then the crash, you know what I mean? Then it's like so much internal struggle, so much internal conflict, so much like my hesitance of ever being a leader really started to come out. I wanted, I always had the desire to lead. I've always had the ability to lead. Well, I think even more so people have had the desire to follow. Well, I've, but I've always been a reluctant leader and and I, I, I really lost, I really lost the fight because my confidence was just so so low at the time when you and I met. So, so where I think it, it was a very mutual meeting, it's like you may have been learning graphic design and, and artistry from me, but you were like reminding me what, um, an adult conversation, was. what an adult conversation was yeah. absolutely because I had, it'd been years since I had one. It had been years since I didn't feel like I was walking on eggshells around my associates, sure. around my bandmates. Sure. It had been years since I had checked in with myself. It had been years, maybe even never at this point. I don't know if I'd have even ever been honest with myself about my That's situation. That's a very good way of looking at and it. And you, you brought some perspective into my life that I desperately needed because you had no emotional attachment to what I was going through. So if I brought something up, oh yeah, if yeah. I brought something up with you, you were able to quickly... That's the corporate and analyze. That's corporate too. Corporate, there is no emotion in any subject that you talk about. Well, There's it, only it, efficiency. It, it may in the be betterment. corporate, but it it was something that I really needed. Well, and, and, it, and it planted a seed, Wade. It planted a seed that 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 sprouted and blossomed into what I now know is self care. That's insane. It really did. It, it, I remember talking to you about this just a couple of weeks ago. And I've though. never had somebody be so open and honest with me mm. that way. That wasn't a family member. No. You know what I mean? No. But this like just somebody who came into my life, you, you posed no threat in the way that you presented information to me. Sure. And I think I really appreciated that. Well, it, even within that though, you take that information, you act upon. But I was ready. Yeah. And I think that, that that's something that people may take for granted or, or simply don't understand is that if, if you're not ready Oh. To be honest with yourself or hear the truth, yeah. you're not going to hear it, and that's that's one of my biggest. Problems. And you're not you, you you're going to live in denial. And, and and the thing about it is, is my life had had, had kind of my life was not good at at that point yeah. in my life, yeah. and I wasn't one willing to admit that to myself. You had two, a lot of conflict. I, yeah, two. Conflict. I didn't have. I didn't know my way out of it. Well, not only a lot of conflict, but you also had to prose yourself to your your demographic. And I hate Absolutely. saying it demographic, but you have to prose yourself as, "Hey, man, everything's cool." Absolutely. I made a career. I made a career yeah. of everything's fine. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's 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 amazing to think that you know, going through a divorce, going through all, all of this stuff in my life, 
very publicly, willingly, publicly, yeah. Yeah. getting to this place of honesty so hard. And, and vulnerability. Oh, but it has been so freeing. Like, sure. I feel so much lighter. I feel so much. Um, well, we used to have a conversation back in the day because when we first met, you're in this. You're you're going to get married. You got. You're not engaged at this point in time. I don't um, think. Uh, I think I got engaged like a year after we met somewhere. Yeah, that sounds about right. 2015. Uh, and we would have this conversation because I had just got done with my own like Patrice O'Neill be a man workshop type yeah. of thing, and it was like this self is what I need to right. perfect. Well, you've had so many the... rises and falls sure. at this point. You were sure. able to really just kind of shine, shed some sure. light. Uh, uh, but even within that, now how we talk, now I'm getting ready to be married and I'm like, these two people are going to make this life. And you're like, ah, you like this solidarity, the singularity that, sure. that makes you this yeah, person. And I'm, and I'm super happy uh, for you. you man. Abso- and I'm super happy for you. Like, yeah. I absolutely know what it, the freeingness to be able to say I'm alright with myself. Here's the thing, Wade, and you know, and I don't consider myself a religious person, but I'm definitely a spiritual are, person. I yeah. mean, I've got an altar over here with, with sage sure, and yeah, feathers. Absolutely, and, man. I mean, I, I believe in the power of intention. I believe in, in, in the universe and manifestation. I I got invited to be a part of a, a peyote ceremony with with my sister and my brother-in-law, and they invited yeah. me They invited me into the teepee. It was a couple years ago. They they said of an, an intention to do a peyote ceremony for my niece, Matea, every year of her life for, for the next four years. Fuck yeah. And in that TP, I really learned how to pray. I really learned what vulnerability is. I really learned um, a lot about myself, a lot about relations, a lot about um, just the the point I'm making here is that my prayer was, I really want healthy relationships in my life. Which is on you to begin with. 100%. Here's the thing about having healthy relationships. Um, My relationships weren't healthy at the time. Oh yeah, yeah, and and as a matter of fact, they were very unhealthy, and that's not that's not on anybody but myself. Sure, because I had the tendency to overcompensate. I had the tendency to to really project myself into this um, person who I thought people needed me to be. There's a lot of assumption in that. One hundred percent. You know what I mean? One hundred percent. And so, in, in in the strangest way of how the universe unfolds. My getting divorced, my not now not having a best friend around anymore, um, having to cut a lot of toxic people out of my life, was necessary for having healthy relationships. Yeah, I. It's amazing. I don't know if it's a rite of passage. Like that failure has to happen before you decide. Like for me, it might have been a rite of passage with my ex fiance in my early twenties and whatnot to go through the the tumultuous. Man, mine was a decade. Mine was I don't, almost 10 years, man. I don't think there's any avoiding it. No. I really don't. I, I think that experience is always going to be king. And I think that as much as our parents and other mentors in our life try to prepare us for those sort of things, until you go through something, there is just no... No way. There's no yeah, way you could ever know. Nobody can protect you from it. No. And hey, I have got... I don't want to sound anti-relationship because I've got nothing but love for people who are able to make a relationship work for sure. decades. I hope to be like to do that myself. Uh, but to make that happen, you have to have like like I said, I got that ego, but I had no confidence in myself. So when it came right. down to it, like and those are and yeah, yeah. and that, that's a great thing. To, that's really a good thing to point out is that there's a difference between an ego and having confidence. Absolutely. So my insecurity is at home, and that ego is a byproduct of that insecurity. 100%. I love the way you put sure. that. Sure. So 
through that, though, there has to be a healthy manifestation for that ego to thrive. Because if there wasn't, and this is me personally speaking, if there's not, then it only can infest. If sure. I'm not going to this is spread an, it out. Yeah. And this is another great point, a healthy ego. Which is, it, so when you said creative wellness, you like triggered cognitive dissonance inside of my head. You really, <laughs> like, that's a, those two words just don't exist because... I think of the source of my creativity comes from the overabundance of fucking anger. Yes. I have. I love it. Yeah. But you know what? You put the word healthy before any of those things. Sure. And it's possible. It's sure. possible. There is a healthy way to hey, express man, your there's anger. There's a healthy way for you to write a song, sure. And it sucks that for a healthy way for me to, to express all that, I get to say a lot of fucked up shit in the process. I really get to go up on stage and say some shit that people are like, is this dude telling the truth? Because it is fucked up. Well, that that's what works, though. And that, that that's, sure. the beauty, that's the beauty of artistry is nobody gets to tell you what works no, for you. No, man, not at they all. They really don't. Not and, at all. And, and, and the discussion discovery of that and, and the way we figure that out, the, the, the just trudging through the mud and all the fucking bullshit we have yeah. to go through in order to free ourselves from any sort of um, comparing we do. Sure. From any sort of, um, sure. you know, everybody's going to have their opinions. Everybody's well, going to have... one of the hardest parts for me being an artist as opposed to being a corporate person is a corporate person, there is a very structured way for you to get to the top. Mm-hmm. Wherever it is you want to go, do you want to be middle management? Here is a very structured way for you to be middle sure. management. Okay, you want and there's to be a, lots to be learned from that. Sure, but when you contrast that with stand-up comedy, with graphic design, with making music, there is zero way for there is no ladder, there is no concept for you to be successful. No. What do you want to be on Netflix? I don't fucking know. Right. I don't know. Do you want work? Put in twenty hours a day, fucking uh, on stage, ten thousand well, hours. Well, that's you know, something like, that's something people don't really witness, and and that, that's what's beautiful about the podcast uh, sure. and the long format, and and what's really got me into it is just listening to thousands of interviews of realizing that every artist had to fucking struggle to get oh, where yeah. they are. Well, you, that's you, a part you, you of... take any you take any successful you know author, comedian, musician, and 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 the one thing that you're probably missing is the 15 fucking years it took them sure. to get Absolutely. to your ears. Absolutely. Uh the biggest uh, it, my biggest uh uh equation is trauma equals creativity. It and I only know it to be that. So every stand-up comic I know is fucked up. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, no, everybody's fucked up. Yeah, sure. Uh, Nobody is free of trauma. No, but I, I, I don't know why I consider comedians to go through just a little bit more fucked up shit. Uh, Because you're biased. Yeah, yeah, I really am. And I shouldn't say that because you know Basquiat probably went through some fucked up shit in his life. You know, Van Gogh never sold a goddamn painting while he was alive. Sure, you know, like that would that would fuck me over if no one told me I was good my entire creative career. Uh, However, in that process, is in that creative wellness, like there is definitely for me, there's a darkness that that has to come out. Oh, the darkness it is... It has to. Man. And, 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 but you got to make friends with the darkness. Well, what I have to do... Or I like, do, As a I comic, what I have to do is be able to live in the awkwardness of the darkness. That's something so, you really taught me, too. So, as a stand-up comic, it's my job to create an awkward situation. 
in tension. In, yeah, the, it's it all about happen. tension. And to create Dissonance. that situation, that means I have to be happy about everything that's just occurred, oh, right? I love and, it. And I have to do that with people that I don't know. So here's 200 people that I just said some pretty, you know, I'm in in middle America, very conservative, <laughs> and I'll say stuff like I'm the bastard son of a Muslim immigrant. Now, saying that in parts of California are cool. Let me tell you, people saying that in Southeast Kansas. That'll definitely get you a very sure. audible, very clear, what the fuck, you know, from the back of the audience to where now. But it's a beautiful thing to, is, to speak man. your truth no matter where it you're is. at. And that is, that may be one of the most beautiful it things, is, is, is to know who you are and to speak your truth. And also, I've never wanted to to, to spend my whole life to be in the middle. Sure. Like, the middle, sure. the middle consists of pleasing everybody. I agree. The middle consists of of, of censoring yourself. The middle consists of, of, I say this to this group of people, but I say this to this other group. Well, and it's funny here's you the say thing. that. Here's the thing. Be a one or a ten. Be sure. hated or loved. Don't, sure. don't be in the middle. Don't, don't be medi- uh, uh, one of my Mediocrity. favorite quotes from Gangs of New York. Leo Dio, one of my favorite actors, as well as uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Daniel, Shout out. Daniel Day-Lewis says, Day Lewis says in one of the lines, he's like, you are neither hot, you are neither, you are nor are you cold, you are lukewarm, so I spit you out of my mouth. Yeah. Uh, uh, I definitely agree with that. Yeah, and that's, and that's, and that's something I learned from you, too. It's like you, you as a comedian, you've made it your job to split a room. 100%. You've made, made it your job to, to create 100%. tension, to lean into awkwardness. Well, but what you're saying now as well, I have to have, I have to play around the fringes of, of your statement that you just made. And, and that fringe is, uh, uh, that censorship part. So while you're making music and the new album you made, I swear to God, man, I know I laughed so hard when I heard it. It's because it's one of the most beautiful fucking things. That I <laughs> can't believe you fucking made this goddamn album. Every time sure. I think about it, man, it's insane. Uh, I have to, to get paid, censor myself. Right. So... But like we we were talking before we started recording, there's a, a stand-up comic named Ben Cronenberg who gave me some wonderful advice when it comes to my world because I said I want to start writing clean material. That way I can get the real money. Like, well, I think that's so smart, though. Sure. Well, I like being diverse. I like being a multi-tool, but I like getting paid as well. But here's the thing. Well. You, you don't have to censor yourself to write clean material. And this is what Ben Cronenberg said. So I gave him an example of a bit that I said. I was like, you know, my... my uh, uh, my fiance is asexual, which means she doesn't like sex, which sucks because that's the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> ben Cronenberg said, oh, your girlfriend is asexual. She doesn't give a fuck, which is the smartest fucking joke I've ever heard. <laughs> it's vulgar. And, and 100% within all of that, he's like, I just made that dirty, but you can make it clean. Right. Don't censor yourself. And don't go for Let the cheap the, yeah. laugh. Let the original come out. Use your intelligence. Correct. You know what I mean? Let the original it's not come about, out yeah, and then work about, the Rubik's Cube it's down. It's not so that. much about censorship, it's about accessibility. Correct. Uh, which is a very good point. Uh, one of my favorite things to bring up, Chris Rock is one of my favorite comics of all time. And one Absolutely. of the reasons why he can, you can apply this to Bill Burr and Dave Chappelle sure. and, and uh, other great comics, Liza Schlesinger. Uh I went to watch Chris Rock and the people in front of me. The dude on the right was an obvious 1% hedge fund manager. Uh-huh. And sitting next to him was a very obvious Wendy's burger flipper. Mm-hmm. Now, these two worlds have nothing in common outside of homie ordering a burger from homie. They should not be laughing at the same bit together, but they are. 
Because right. Chris Rock is hilarious, and he knows how to communicate to all forms of humanity here on this planet. That's such a great point. And being able to do that in his show, five minutes later, the 1% hedge fund manager is offended. And the, the burger flipper's laughing his ass off. But five minutes after that, the burger flipper is offended, and the hedge fund manager is laughing his ass off. And then at the very end of the show, everybody's laughing their ass off. But that isn't that isn't that that's the, the goal? That's the goal. That's yeah. the duty of being an artist. One hundred percent. You know what I mean? Is I think in our autonomy, in us not considering the burger flipper and the hedge fund sure. person, in us sure. being who we are, yeah, just let that's it go. where you find. That. Yeah, I agree. You don't find that trying to do that. But now you're talking about the processes of creativity. Absolutely. So if you were to apply creative wellness to creative process, I don't know how to do that. Like I don't know creative wellness to process. I the only part I know of creative wellness is if I'm depressed, I should start to design something. I should start to write something. Absolutely. I should start to. I should start to do something to get this out. Uh, for me as an artist, especially when it comes to uh, creation, mine's all about momentum and recognizing it. So I know that I'm not on 24-7. I could be on 24-7 in a corporate right. restaurant, but as an artist, it doesn't work like that for me. So life uh, life is slowed down a little bit for you. Not not slowed down in the sense of your output, but slowed down in the sense of you're not working five jobs. Correct. You're not you're not working in, in a corporate correct. world. So what, walk, walk me through... Uh, just a daily routine, just just something sure. you do outside of creativity, sure. or you could include creativity. That just is you taking care of yourself. How do you take care of yourself? Origami, origami. Yeah, I need uh, some type of activity going on at all times. That's meditative. Yeah, uh, uh, and more than meditative, challenging. So origami is so goddamn challenging with precision which is a big part of who I am and why I succeeded in the corporate world is that precision. Sure. Comedy, I don't need it necessarily. You definitely need to be precise about what you're saying, but you don't need like uh, a metalist, like metallurgy, like precision and stuff like that. You definitely, in origami, need precision and patience and the ability to fail. And all of these three things come together while I figure my shit out. Uh... If not that, a lot of my time is driving, and I don't think there's a fit, more favorite activity I have in this world than driving. Hmm. And driving. Do you still walk a lot? Always. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's. Uh, I mean, that's another way of yeah. taking care of yourself. Five miles a day. Is is yeah. walking meditative for you, or is that where you work out some of your? No, that's meditative. Uh, meditative, but my mind is all over the place. So it's like, how do you quiet your mind? I don't, you don't <laughs> just realize at that point in time that I need. So, so recognizing the obstruction, I guess is, is one of my big things that obstruction being depression, that obstruction being my own ego or complacency. Like it's been three weeks. What are the red flags? What are the red flags when you feel like you're heading in that direction? And how do you change uh, it? Brown cinnamon sugar pop tarts. When I, <laughs> <laughs> that's that's what I notice. Uh, things are starting to go downhill. That's my that's my depressive food, I guess. So if I'm like grabbing at a pop tart, I know that, wow, that I should start like it's so weird. That's incredible though. Like I love the self awareness though. Yeah, but that's I mean what, it's, yeah. it's it's I think it's I think to me that is creative wellness. Sure. To me that that's recognizing what's going to send us into non productivity. Yeah. That, and non non productivity is non creativeness. One hundred percent. You know what I mean. So, uh, video games also are very rad for me, but it's uh, it, 
was something I had to quit. Mm-hmm. I had to quit playing video games when I started stand-up comedy because I was playing Call of Duty for 13 hours a day. It's a distraction. Well, I was going to well, go, go pro. <laughs> I swear to God. Like, I was, I was number one in the state for Call of Duty. Uh, amongst all of the stats and everything like that, mm. little kids. This is before YouTube. Like you started recording on YouTube, and like fucking kids would blast it all over Twitter and shit. Like that was not happening yet, but it was about to happen, and people were recording my clips and like playing. So I was like, I'm either gonna be a fucking gamer or I'm gonna be a stand-up comic. Man. So gave up video games. Uh, gave up smoking, gave up pornography, gave up women, gave up everything for like five years. Man. Yeah. I love it though. Yeah. It's like to to me. When we learn to prioritize the things in our life, so much opens up. Well, you know what else is is realizing that you're allowed to fail at that too. Yeah. So absolutely. If I need to take a step back to take twelve step forward, I will do that. Uh, you're I, allowed I, to fail. I love one hundred percent at everything. Uh, at everything. It doesn't matter if it's your process, if it's your New Year's resolution. Who gives a shit? Like that failure, as long as you're going to continue to like keep going from Not it. Not only that, but that that's where that's where self love really comes into play. It is really so important. Is well, that is that when you do. Fail. Failure is not. It's it's not something that may or may not happen. It's correct, guaranteed, guaranteed. Uh, the past year for me was probably one of the hardest. It's like how, what wise. you do with that failure yeah. is everything. So stand up comedy wise, to give some people some perspective, uh, a solid headliner has about an hour and a half of material, and for me, I could talk for an hour and a half. Love the sound of my voice. However, I'm only funny for about thirty five to forty minutes, and that's six years of work. Yeah, I would love for that to be an hour and a half, but that's going to take me thirty-five another six to forty years. minutes is in, is an incredible feat. Yeah. For, for, for for people out there who who don't uh, who've never dabbled in in comedy or who who've maybe only witnessed or, comedy or through, having through specials, to perform for an hour. Yeah, if an hour of of material, even by some of the best comics in the world, is worked on for. Decades, yeah, yeah, decades. 100%. Well, yeah, well, well. I mean, as far as the background research, but, oh, but, but yeah. like you, you, yeah. you take a Kevin Hart. I mean, he's working on sixteen months before he does that. Yeah. Before and, he does that special. For me, I have one bit about the NFL that lasts now. I think it's twelve minutes long, but it originally started out as I think six words. Right, and it took me six years to make those six words. That's what I'm minutes. saying. If if I, I would challenge any of our audience members, if if you think that an hour of comedy is is no time at all, go to an open mic. Oh fuck! And oh, try so to do five. Yeah, go to Lulu's and watch how that goes. And down. try to do five minutes. Do, try to do two. Yeah. I I want you to do two minutes and get a response every ten seconds for two minutes, dude. I like I when I got up on stage and, and tried my hand at comedy. I didn't have a plan. I didn't. I, I didn't. I was go up so there mad with. that you had like jokes. Like you had a format. You were fucking funny. I didn't I was though. So goddamn mad. I didn't. I I was. I literally in in my naivety. And that's the way the universe works. Is um if you're trying something for the first time. And and this is something I read in The Alchemist. It's one of my favorite books. The universe will conspire to to aid you. I love you. that. The universe will conspire to aid you in, in that if that's something you really want to do. So what I think I experienced was was what's commonly known as beginner's luck. <laughs> and it sparked... You put it that way. Because the next time I did it, I was really humbled. And I was like, oh, shit. That's how it's supposed to happen, though. Yeah. That's, that's how it's supposed to happen in stand-up comedy. However, and if I may argue for your benefit, you are an artist. 
and we have discussed how formulaic that can be across multiple oh, fields. Oh, absolutely. Well, it's, the rule of three exists yeah, in graphic of, design, it exists in music, it exists everything. in comedy. Yeah, there, there right? is some constants, and so a lot with, of it is based on rhythm correct. and timing. And you have a little bit of that going into sure. that. It's not like you were Bojan who needed to be taught that after like two years, because Bojan had one of the best sets I'd ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> that guy at, at a random show one night. It was it was crazy to see two years of his work pay off in five minutes oh, man, like never it. before. It was amazing, right? So he had to learn that, whereas when you learned that was probably when you were 18 months old. And, sure. And, and being able but to But comedy is that. like such a different beast. Very and and like anybody who thinks they can go from being a... a, a you uh, had your head down a lot. It a, would crack me up. A musician yeah. to being a comedian? Well, I had no confidence. Sure, you know what I mean? your feet. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, and, and the truth is, is like, I am a very confident musician, but I... I yeah, you talk between your sets all the time, or between yeah. your songs all the time. But you know? but at the same time, like, I didn't I didn't have any real confidence. It was, sure. It was all, it was all manufactured. Sure. Because... Did not having a guitar in front of you matter? Fuck yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. That was like my shield. Yeah, you know 100%, I mean? right? But what, what it really did for me was it gave me... An incredible respect for comedians. It gave me an incredible respect for people who try something as terrifying as stand-up comedy. Uh, comedy. It's it's one of the scariest and most rewarding things I've ever tried. Um, and it's all you. You own every sure. moment. You own every, every moment, moment on that stage. You. If you bomb, if you succeed, our if you rule fail. is you're only as good as your last set. So yeah. we have no ladder of you're doing great. You know, we have no ladder of uh, you are now successful as a stand-up comic. We have only monetary success and our peers' opinion. Sure. So, which is much more than monetary success in the stand-up world. Like Doug Stanhope, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, how, do you, how do you measure your success as a comedian? So how do you me, know you're growing? For me, there is uh, this wonderful middle class of stand-up comedy that I would love to get to. I don't necessarily need a Netflix special. I would love to be able to just tour back and forth across America as a headliner, get paid to do it, and just love life, man. I love to be a road dog. That is, that's the awesome part. I think that that's comedy. such a good headspace to have. Yeah. And I think that if you love something, you do it. Yeah, I, got to, I get to go to weird places, man. I got to go last or two weekends ago. I went to Ogallala, Nebraska. Yeah, I've been to Ogallala. Place is that awesome. was like the first place outside. That's the first. That's the furthest west I ever went as a 22 year old. No shit. Huh? Yeah. Well, and then I eventually made it oh, to New going York. New York. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, but but that was like the first place that I had been. Freaking! I'm sorry, east. Yeah, east. The first yeah, place you, I had been east of of Colorado. You go to this place, you're like Ogallala, and yeah. you show up to Ogallala, and they have like I've a, never been in like the town of. Ogallala. I went to the town I, of Ogallala. I just went to the lake and yeah, crashed oh, the beautiful out. lake. Yeah, yeah they yeah. have a huge Lake McConaughey, which gets yep. like yep. hundred thousand tourists and a bunch it's of bald beautiful. eagles. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. But you go to this place like Ogallala, you learn their history. You know, well, like yeah. I know I brought, bagged on Southeast Kansas earlier, but literally that's my stomping ground, man. <laughs> Iola, Chinook. No, these I love little, it. Yeah, Moran. Kansas has a population of 300 people and zero internet, but guess what? They know who Wade Ridley is there, and I love that shit, Absolutely. man. Yeah. Um, I think think we're going to wrap this thing up, but one thing I do want to acknowledge is that I really like the fact that when you set that intention of um, 
I'm not going to chase this money anymore. I'm going to chase the experience. Yep. I feel like you're you're right there, man. Uh, thanks, you, you, man. You set that intention early on in your life, and I I can just see that moving. Struggle I can, all I, the way through. Yeah, man, I can I love see it. it. And, and and the thing about it is, is you found love in the struggle. Yes. And you found love in in humanity and realness yes. in in what you do. And I appreciate that so much, Wade. Man, you had so much to do with it too. I man, appreciate you likewise. so much. Thanks for having me on this too. Yeah, dude. Thank you for being the first guest. I What's think the name of this it's called um cast the line podcast cast the line and i explain gotcha. why it's called cast the line in the monologue um in the monologue Excellent. but but basically it has it has to do with about with me thinking about my creativity as a as a river or body of water i return to nice and i throw my line in the water nice. and i used to be really concerned with with catching something um, early on in my career, whether it was a, a, a small fish Instead that I would just throw enjoying back. enjoying the sunny day, huh? Yeah, now, yeah. I, now I just realize that my creativity is not about catching anything. It's just about casting that line. 100%. It's about man. putting it I in the water. I love that. And That's a great philosophy. it has nothing to do with the result. It's just the joy sure. of creating. That's what it is, man. And I think with that, we'll You're wrap that up. You're doing it, bud. All right. Love Thanks, you, Wade. Man. Love you too, man. Well, friends, there you have it. Episode number one in the bag. I'm so excited to get this out there. I'm so excited to create more episodes. And if you want to keep up with Wade Ridley, you can do so on his Instagram and Twitter page, at Wade in the Toilet. So excited to talk to you guys again, friends. We'll see you next time. Until then, happy trails.